absolutely no collusion. I didn't make a phone call to Russia. I have nothing to do with Russia. Everybody knows it. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. The British government has learned that Saddam Hussein recently sought significant quantities of uranium from Africa. How many times do I have to answer this question? Can you just say Russia yes no is a ruse. Good morning and welcome to a special edition of Skullduggery. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And we're in live from the museum in Washington, D.C. in front of a great audience. <laughs> and, first live show. Um, and we're also excited to be live streaming the podcast for the first time on Yahoo.com. You know, uh, Dan, this is a uh, very special weekend in Washington. It's the White House Correspondents' Dinner uh, event tomorrow, um, tomorrow night. And um, for the second year in a row, President Trump is going to be a no-show. You know, it's interesting. He's going to be in Washington. Yep. He's going to be in Washington, Michigan. <laughs> counter-programming. Doing some counter-programming to, to, uh, to, uh, to the, the swamp. And, you know, the, the White House Correspondents' Dinner historically has not been his favorite event. Um, some might remember uh, that uh, uh, he was gently mocked, some would say humiliated, by uh, President Obama a few years back, um, where he went, went after right. him about the, the celebrity apprentice. Uh, uh, right. Obama said something like, you know, you know these, are the, these are the decisions that, that keep you up at night. Um, and what people yeah. don't remember is that it was right at that time that Obama was actually making the decision to do the raid uh, that led to the to the killing of Osama bin Laden. So, and of course, the theory is that uh, that the mocking of, uh, of of Donald Trump at that event is what inspired him or uh, to run for president, and in a way gave birth to skullduggery indirectly. <laughs> well, then we can all thank but him look, and thank the White House Correspondents' Dinner for that. But because event. it's right. the White House Correspondents' Dinner, um, yeah. one of the things we're doing on this show is we're having um, a uh, we're kind of turning the lens. Uh, on us, on the press, and we're going to have a great panel of journalists to discuss the media right. and uh, and uh, our coverage of of this scandal. So that should be great. Right. right. And you want to give us a, a little yes. plug? Uh, we're very um, cool news yes. to announce. Very yeah. cool news to announce, uh, which is that uh, Skullduggery is now going to be on uh, Sirius XM Radio, um, and uh, Sirius XM subscribers can now listen to us on the. POTUS Channel 124 every Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 2 a.m. Eastern Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time, so check us out. All right, well, without further ado, let's get started with our first guest. Please welcome the Democratic Senator from Virginia the vice and Vice Chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee, Senator Mark Warner. Thank you. Senator, welcome Thanks. to Skullduggery. Right. So, um, Senator, thanks for being here. My pleasure. Uh, Although I just, you know, you're earlier comments so we can actually blame the White House Correspondents' Dinner for the rise of Donald Trump? Who would have thought? <laughs> one of, uh, you know, the, one of many fathers to the Trump presidency. Uh, that, uh, so let's, uh, uh, look, um, uh, this is a show that's dedicated intensely and some would say obsessively to the uh, scandals of the Trump presidency, starting with the Russia matter. Um, you have called this, you famously called this when you started uh, your investigation in January of last year, that this was going to be the most important uh, work you had done in your public life. Um, here we are. 15 months later, um, give us an update on where you are in your investigation. Well, we've seen literally hundreds of, of witnesses, mostly all by the staff, because we, we've operated differently, obviously, than the House process. Tens of thousands of pages of documents. Um, we had the, you know, that famous Comey interview where he laid out uh, the content of the memos. And where I think we've put some points on the board is, one, you know, we've got the whole intelligence community, both the Obama intelligence community and the Trump intelligence community, to reconfirm that the 
Russians intervened in the election to help Trump to hurt Clinton. We pointed out uh, and showed that the Russians at least monitored or intervened in 21 of our state's electoral systems. Now, in a normal administration, after that, you would have had a White House convene a working group about election security. They've done none of that, even though the DHS and others have said this is a problem and they'll be back. But we have got now bipartisan legislation to deal with that. We got $380 million to help states upgrade their electoral system. We've got paper ballots in many states now, and paper ballots. we've got a report trail. coming on got, this we've issue, got a report, right? We've got a report coming. I'll come back to the reports. Mm -hmm. We thought we were mostly done, but as in so many areas, there's more information to come. I think maybe the most, one of the most valuable things we've done is we have exposed how social media, uh, which initially after the election, when I first started this, I said, you know, I think social media had been used by, by the Russians. And... Zuckerberg and others famously blew us off and said, you know, there's no there there. Well, there's a lot more there there, and Frank, there'll be a policy implications for months, if not years, to come about how we rethink the usage of social media, and we will have a, a report there. Uh, we're going to have a series of reports on election security, on the validity of the intelligence community assessment, what went right or wrong in the Obama administration, social media, and then the ultimate question, collusion. And on that one, which everyone uh, asks me about all the time, uh, I'm going to have to simply say stay tuned. There are, there are literally more lines of inquiry today than there were eight or nine months ago because on each one of the meetings that have been reported leads to one, test, uh, one witness. That witness testifies, mentions more individuals. I would have liked this to have moved much, much quicker, but... That's where well, we're Senator, at. so you've been doing this investigation for 14 or 15 months now, right. um, and collusion was the question at the heart of it at the very beginning. So after all this time, after interviewing all these witnesses, seeing all these documents, are you, uh, uh, do, are, are you is, is your belief, uh, you know, more that there is collusion, or are you less sure that there's collusion? I mean, has I, that, have I'd you moved at all? I'd love to tell you, but... Uh, uh, Honestly, we're going to try. I, I've said, and I think one of the reasons why our committee stayed bipartisan is because both me and, and Richard Burr, the chairman, and, and I think for the most part the committee members have said, we're going to reserve our final judgment till we get through the whole process. I will tell you this. There are, uh, but, and, and this is all in the public domain. You, you've seen a whole series of Mueller Indictments. I think some of that came from some of our work. Uh, I don't think they would have made some of the indictments of the Russians but for the work we did in social media. But there were clearly, through Papadopoulos, through other individuals that were in the Trump orbit, a series of efforts by the Russians to reach out to Trump world writ large and offer what has been described as dirt or information. So well, we'll have we to follow, follow that. We just, to I just finish. want to follow up sure. on this one mm -hmm. point. Um, because you talk about how important uh, uh, that this investigation be bipartisan um, and that you've done it differently from the House. Um, on the question of whether the Russians intervened um, to help Trump and to hurt Hillary Clinton, uh, is, is there a consensus forming on your committee, a bipartisan con I, consensus I on that, that one point? I believe there is a consensus both because we have interviewed all of the people who were involved in the report, but more as important is that you know, the head of the FBI, the director of central intelligence, the head of the NSA, the, the ODNI head, both under the Obama folks and the Trump folks, one of the first questions we ask is for the, for the Trump people, you know, do you agree with the assessment of the ICA of January 9th, I believe, uh, 2017? And part of that assessment was explicitly clear that uh, while they had intervened in the election and tried to hack into both parties, at some point during the election season, they determined at the highest levels of the Russian government, it was to Russia's advantage, not because they favor one political party over the other, to actually help Trump and there was clearly lots of evidence that Putin had a huge distaste for Clinton. Are you going to be able to produce a bipartisan report? I think we will be able to produce 
many of these sections will be bipartisan. The election... Yeah, but we, on the critical but, but question let's, let's, of collusion, which is the one everybody is looking for, and you know it, Senator, and the House shock, Intelligence shock. Committee <laughs> broke down total partisanship, you know, uh, uh, dueling reports, uh, which has not illuminated for the public at all. Can you produce one? Mike, what I think we will produce will be significant validation of what happened. Because there's a whole lot of folks now based upon Mr. Trump and some of his allies who, you know, make these broad-based ad hominem attacks against the whole intelligence community. Uh, recently, one of the most dangerous things, broad-based attacks against the FBI and the Department of Justice, in effect, undermining rule of law. We're going to come back out reaffirming the work of the intelligence community. I think we are going to show as well around elector elections that they intervened, and frankly, the United States, what, eight months before the election, six months before the election, we are not fully prepared. We don't even have all the appropriate top election officials cleared, and many states are still using vulnerable machines, both bipartisan. We're going to, I think, have some tough words and comments to make about what happened with the last administration, where they may have missed it. A, a number of times, and that's I think that's important. failing to respond to the Russian I attack think, in real time. Again, let's get to the let's get to the uh, content uh, of the report. Uh, I think, and, and this is an area where I think we are still working through. Um, we, on purpose, chose not to try to bring Zuckerberg in uh, when he came in last time. We want to see all three of the CEOs, and. We, We've been working, at least I've been working, on a bucket of policy proposals that can, uh, I think, go beyond the privacy issue. Now, this is me more speaking more individually. I have a background in this field. And there are serious policy debates that have to come out of that social media developments. I think that will be value-add and mostly bipartisan. On the last question, mm -hmm. you know, the, the million-dollar question on collusion, yeah. I honestly think it's too early to tell. We've still got witnesses. We've still got a series of witnesses to see. We got thousands of additional documents just within the last two weeks. We've still got the question of whether the, the, the transition, for example, who is still trying to, I believe, create a, a uh, novel legal theory that they claim executive privilege over certain transition documents, I, we've, got, we've received thousands. We've, they've got thousands more to get, a, get us. Um, I think when we have all the facts, uh, if, if all the facts show that this was all coincidence, I'll be the first to acknowledge that. If it shows otherwise, I believe that the, we will get a bipartisan, maybe not unanimous bipartisan, but I believe there will be bipartisan assessment. And that's at the end of the day. You know, it raises so much importance because we're not only looking backwards, we're looking prospectively. And I think at the end of the day, the American public deserves these answers. And what's so frightening to me is that you know, you, while you've not had Trump try to threaten our effort, you clearly have had him threaten Mueller and anybody affiliated with that. And to my mind, that are not, those are not the actions of somebody who says, this is just a witch hunt and there's nothing to hide. Well, Senator, uh, speaking of what the American public deserves, um, in some of the big scandals, um, you know, modern times, Watergate, Iran-Contra, the really big moments uh, took place in, in public hearing rooms. You know, you, everyone remembers uh, the Alexander Butterfield, the junior aide, uh, White House aide who uh, shocked the world by revealing the existence of a secret uh, recording system, which led to the smoking gun and the it downfall. Did so in public, before the TV cameras. Right? Uh, and Iran Contra, uh, Ali North um, revealed the fact that uh, money from the Iran operation was diverted to the to the Contras. That all happened publicly. The American people could see it. You've not done that. There have not been many public hearings at all, and that seems to have been a conscious choice. But why shouldn't the American people see, you know, Don Trump Jr. or uh, Jared Kushner, who attended the, the infamous uh, June 2016 um, meeting with the, in Trump Tower with the Russian operatives? Don't, doesn't the American people ha have a, a right to, to see those people come forward and testify? When I will would, they testify? I would still, well, some of those individuals have been in and done closed-door testimony, I still would love to get them to the point where we can get that kind of so why open testimony. You? So why, well, why because, hasn't because it been this, public? Because this is a working relationship uh, where we're in the minority and we work through these things. I'm saying that that's... So wait, you want it me, in public and Senator yeah, Burr has said, no, we're going to keep I, this I'm in I'm saying private. that we're going to work through having all of the 
previous, all the witnesses we need first before we cross that bridge. I'd also say the difference between the Watergate hearing and the Iran-Contra hearing and this whole investigation, by the nature of an intelligence investigation, you're going to, in effect, the presupposition is that most of that will be in some level of classified setting. We are getting into sources and methods of how the United States deals with a counterintelligence so threat. Is the and there is, appropriate, is the... there is appropriateness, I believe, in protecting those sources and methods. Well, does that mean that the final report will be highly redacted? I think that the final report, there will obviously be a classified and an mm -hmm. unclassified version. End of the day, if we're going to get the value of some level of closure, the more we can make public, the more we can have unclassified, the better, because at the end of the day, you're going to have, in, in light of where we are right now, you've got a whole slew of the president's allies who say, you know, shut it down, witch hunt, that believe lock, stock, and barrow, the, the uh, kind of constant uh, tweetage that comes out of the White House. You've got a lot of folks on the Democratic side who absolutely presume he has to be guilty, everything, every possible speculation is true. And our job right now, uh, and my hope is that Mueller will also, he has a whole set of tools that we don't have, but that we will come out somewhere in, near the same place and we can get, bring some clarity for the sake of the country. Back, but, I just want to go back to, but I just want to go back to timing. I mean, I remember last year, Senator Burr, your chairman, said he wanted the report done before people started voting in 2018. Well, uh, they're already voting in 2018. And, you know, I'm not hearing anything from you about when we're going to either see public hearings or see a public report. I would love to give you a timeline. Yeah. that we could meet, and I think... Are you going to uh, get it, it done in, before the, the elections in November? My hope would be, but let's... But also, Mike, I think one of the things that's as, as anxious as you are to get it, or maybe some folks here are anxious to get it, more importantly is we get it right and we do it thoroughly. If there was not the case where we see a witness and that witness mentions some other individual, and it takes then literally sometimes weeks to get that next individual in, you got to draw these threads out. And I would rather do it thoroughly than do a half-baked report that leaves a lot of questions hanging. And at this point, you know, Frank, I wish, I wish Mueller would move quicker, too. I don't have any idea right. where Mueller stands. But if you go back, go back to your historical precedents. You know, uh, I lived through Watergate. I was in school here during the time. You know, we think it was a fairly concise period. My memory was Watergate was a two-and-a-half-year process. Yeah, but the, but the Watergate hearings in the Senate began publicly in the, uh, in the summer of uh, 1973, um, within a year, practically, of the Watergate break-in itself. We're and, and two years after the 2016 election and, and those, more than a year after you began your and investigation. Those, and those investigations with the Watergate hearings, yeah. again, uh, you probably got more historical knowledge than I, but you're talking... Uh, Two and a half years, I believe, was the time frame. Now, I think the country in, the, in a world where a news cycle isn't 24 hours, but it's two hours or four hours, we're all anxious. No one is more anxious than I am to get through this process, to draw all these strings out, and then get to a conclusion. Senator Warner, do you, uh, are you still concerned that uh, Trump is going to fire Mueller? I am constantly concerned that Trump may try to intervene in the election, whether it's firing Mueller, firing Rosenstein, trying to get rid of Sessions and put somebody in that wouldn't have to recuse themselves. Uh, because said, my, because you, let, me, let, yeah, let me just finish yeah. this, because it's, I think it's important. When you, one of the most damaging things this president has done is by he and his allies making these broad-based, I would argue, ad hominem attacks against not just the investigation, but the whole integrity of the FBI, the Department of Justice, uh, we see this in other, other countries where, where leaders or elites go out and suddenly say the system is rigged and, in effect, give carte blanche to people to say which laws do you want to follow and which ones you don't want to follow. That leads to a destruction of a society. And my fear is that you have at least some of the Trump allies implying that you, you've got to, you can question Department of Justice and others' basic integrity. That is a scary spot, and Mueller's conclusion is important for the sake of the investigation. It's also important for the protection of rule of law. You said um, on a, in a floor speech, I think in December, 
that if he did that, it would be a gross abuse of power and a flagrant violation of executive branch responsibilities and authority. And you said these are truly red lines, um, which sounds like, you know, Article One of impeachment proceedings. Would you, if he did that, do you think that that would... Uh... We have... We have a strategy that will take place if he takes these actions. But to get lured into kind of... Uh, where the president's allies want to go to turn this election into what what would happen if the Democrats take over an impeachment? That's not where I'm headed. Have what I seen, am what I seen? am headed to, towards mm -hmm. is saying and holding as somebody who prides myself on being pretty darn bipartisan, and I've gotten public and private assurances from the vast majority of my Republican colleagues that they believe that is a line too far as well. I think history will judge all of us in the aftermath of this president's interference in an investigation into he and his associates' activities, potentially with a foreign power. If people are not willing to stand up and protect that investigation and protect trying to get the truth when our nation was attacked by another nation and at least some of the affiliates of Mr. Trump were involved, then we're in a very, very frightening, and I do think, constitutional crisis Have time. Have you seen grounds for impeachment? I'm not going there. <laughs> okay. Um... John Brennan, the former CIA director, recently tweeted um, this about President Trump. When the full extent of your venality, moral turpitude, and political corruption becomes known, you will take your rightful place as a disgraced demagogue in the dustbin of history. Now, um, some of uh, Brennan's allies say such language is justified by the extreme behavior of President Trump. But others, um, including one we recently had on this program, uh, Dan Hoffman, former CIA station chief in Moscow, says that Brennan, by making comments like that is only playing into Putin's hands, exacerbating differences in our country, and uh, foreign uh, allies and adversaries around the world, they don't make the distinction between a current CIA director and a former CIA director. You know, where do you come down when you read the comments like that from John Brennan? Well, first of all, I'd be the first to acknowledge that oftentimes the tenor and wording that Mr. Trump uses in his tweets are non-presidential on any level. They are unprecedented. Right. Uh, and I can understand Brennan or anyone else's reaction when he, he so speaks in, in frames that are... Uh, below the office of the presidency for people to, to respond emotionally. I, I get that. I have, I have uh, bit my tongue more often than not. Um, and one of the things I think we need to bear in mind is um, how effective the Russian effort has been. You know, we just, just, we just finished a, doing a budget with a $700 billion defense budget. Russia has a $68 billion defense budget. Russia, starting in 2011, realized they could not compete with us in terms of tanks, trucks, guns, ships. So they decided at that point, Germazov, the Russian chief of staff, wrote a doctrine saying, the way we can compete with the West is in the realm of cyber, misinformation, disinformation. We've seen Russia massively intervene in our election. We've seen them in the French election where Facebook acknowledges they took down 30,000 accounts, yet they've only taken down 470 in our country. We've had recently uh, bipartisan members of the British Parliament come in and say, oh my God, we've seen it in the UK. What scares me as well is if you add up the cost of the Russian activities in our election, French, and the Brexit vote, you're talking about the less than the cost of one new F-35 airplane. I believe we are seeing 21st century conflict tools being used actively by Russia on an ongoing basis. None of this stopped in 2016. And it's a pretty damn good return on investment. And I don't, I still believe, and I, as recently as the last couple of weeks, have had a, all the intelligence community, and we are still both trying to reorganize cyber-wise, and we're, we're still at the early stages of getting all of the IC to work together on how we're going to deal with the social media companies and the ability to manipulate so information we, there. So we've got elections coming up. In fact, you know, primary voting's already happen, happening. But in just six months, a national election, a midterm election, how prepared are we 
uh, to uh, you know, fend off these kinds of attacks one, that we know are coming. One of the biggest fouls this administration has created was if you had a normal administration and you knew that there was this kind of intervention, you would create an entity working out of the White House to coordinate Department of Homeland Security, state and local election officials, a whole slew of things. They've done none of that. And so instead, the committee has put together bipartisan legislation, James Lankford and Kamala Harris, pretty broad group there. We've been able to get $380 million for election security. Most states are now changing out their voting machines to make sure that there is an auditable paper trail. So we're making progress. But on the downside, we got 150 top election officials that need security clearance because a lot of these states weren't even told because the top election official didn't have appropriate security clearance. Only 20 of those people have been cleared. We're not fully ready on the election side. On the, on the social media side, and we're still grappling with 2016 technology, fake accounts. Somebody says they're Mike, but they're actually Boris in St. Petersburg. Next generation will be you put Mike's face on Dan's body and God knows what happens. And streaming video. <laughs> frightening thought. Streaming video. So how do you deal with that, not just in a political context, but in somebody that looks like he's a CEO or she's a CEO putting on information? We are still not at all prepared to fully deal with how we deal with fake information. So you, you combine fake information, election meddling, cyber hacking where you may have real information. We are not, uh, we're not ready. I, I still feel like we're too much caught in the 20th century conflict mode when cyber and misinformation, disinformation is where I think a lot of 21st century conflict. Um, your investigation began after the release of the Steele dossier um, by BuzzFeed with all its okay, sensational it allegations. Yes. Minutes okay. To get to that, so. Now, back in January, when you were asked uh, about this, you said that there, those allegations are still sitting out there, um, and that so little of that dossier has either been fully proven or conversely disproven. That's not particularly helpful. Um, more than a year into your investigation, um, at this point in time, um, how much of the Steele dossier holds up? How much? doesn't. I think it is... And what in particular? I think... Good shot. Um, the vast majority... I know of virtually... Let me just put it like this. I know of virtually nothing in the Steele dossier that has been disproven. What does that what, mean, though? What standard, I mean, that means standard that go, is that? You can I mean, go through the Steele dossier and go through literally hundreds of allegations. Yeah. Um, some being, you know, some being salacious, some being otherwise, some being simply, was Mr. Trump in Moscow on XYZ day? Yeah. And most of that has been, has not been disproven as of the time that the Steele dossier investigation was turned over to Mr. Mueller. One of the things that I think will, one of the historic notes that will come out of this will be this dossier came into U.S. government's possession roughly August of 2016. Right. Um, I think a real question will be, why did our intelligence community not throw amazing amounts of resources on either proving or disproving that dossier much earlier? Simply because the fact that we either have a challenge, if it's true, that you may have a president that could be compromised by the Russians, or if it's not true, you owe an obligation to then-candidate or then-subsequently-President-elect Trump and subsequently-that-President Trump to clear this cloud. We're out of time, but I have one really quick question, which is uh, Gina Haspel, deputy uh, CIA director who's been nominated to be President uh, Trump's uh, CIA director, comes before your committee on May 9th, I think. May 9th. What do you... She's, of course... Uh, known for having overseen uh, one of the black sites in Thailand where torture took place, for also uh, sending the, the order to destroy those tapes. What do you need to see and hear from her so that you might be able to vote for her? And do you think voting for her will be a possibility? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have very much have an open mind. I've, I've read most of the background materials. I think the CIA and Gina's chances go up dramatically the more that can be declassified. And, and I think we will... This is going to be a, a challenging problem. She was a you know, career CIA official. Uh, this would mean the CIA would go back to someone who's actually career-focused rather than a political focus. On the other hand, there's going to be a whole set of questions around what level, did she of, approve, what did level she... of culpability was involved. And frankly, are, are we going to use 
2018 standards for activities that took place in the immediate aftermath of 9-11. I, I got to wrestle with this. I want to see how she does uh, in her hearing. Uh, but I think it will be a time for a lot of self-reflection on Did she approve of what you a, consider to be torture? I am going to wait to let her make the presentation. But there is the more... The thing that would be the most harmful to Gina's nomination prospects is if the CIA... Uh, doesn't lean forward on declassification so senators can have the same view into the totality that I've got. Okay. Um, Senator, uh, thanks for joining us on Skullduggery. We actually have a gift for you. I, I don't that. know if this <laughs> violates the uh, gift ban for members of Congress. I'm not but sure. It might violate your even taste ban, I don't know. Even on your standards, cool. yeah. even on your standards, it can't be more than 50 bucks. So. <laughs> thanks so much, Senator. Really yeah. appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Um, well, what do you think? <laughs> I thought it was good. I, you know, I think um, that he still, he can hear us, so this is maybe a problem. <laughs> I, I, I detect a little bit of concern on his part about how bipartisan uh, the report's going to end up being. Yeah, and I um, think that's going to be the big test. But also, I didn't hear any timetable for when we're actually going to see the report or any timetable for public hearings. Um, I think the, the frustration with the committee is only going to increase over time. Uh, I think there's already been quite a bit, but, you know, to have been yeah. at this for more than a year and... And, and uh, you know, he pointed to some points on the board that, uh, you know, he said that they uh, uh, had come to. But, um, you know, on the critical questions people have been looking to the committee for, um, I'm not sure uh, we've gotten a whole lot of And you do answers. get the sense that unlike in previous, you know, uh, investigations, you know, it is really the special counsel, Bob Mueller, who is driving this thing, and not the congressional committees. Um, it's just, uh, historically, it feels different. But now, we have a great <laughs> panel with us to discuss the media and the Russia investigation. Uh, closest to me, Susan Glasser, is a uh, freshly minted staff writer at The New Yorker, came from Politico, congratulations. Um, Byron York is the chief political correspondent at the Washington Examiner, and Ken Delanian is the national security reporter for NBC News. Thank you all for coming on Skullduggery. Um, Susan, um, what'd you make of what uh, Senator Warner had to say today? Well, first of all, thank you guys. Uh, I hope to count myself as an original friend of the pod. Uh, 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 you, you clearly are. don't <laughs> lack any uh, material <laughs> on uh, something called scandals of the Trump era. There's so many, I imagine you have a hard time figuring out each week uh, what to cover. Um. <laughs> you do. We, we, we change the lineup literally minutes before the show begins. But, uh, you know, yeah. we had a whole cabinet nomination come and go this week in the amount of time that the French president uh, landed in Washington. By the time he left, hours later, the, the nominee was gone. I mean, right. amazing, right? Yeah. Um, so, Senator Warner, you know, I thought you guys valiantly tried uh, there. Um, you know, we're struck by the fact we were talking a little bit about this that he has a need to portray uh, the Senate Intelligence Committee as a sort of relative outpost, at least, of bipartisanship uh, and uh, that there's a real process going on there. There's something quaint about it. Well, yeah, there's something quaint about it, but it also serves the Democrats politically. Uh, when I interviewed Senator Warner uh, uh, in January, and you tried really hard to get him to go beyond that, uh, uh, <laughs> Or Very interesting but, uh, yeah. pushback that I got. So he said the same thing yeah. uh, then, which is basically, well, we're bipartisan in our view of the facts, the basic facts surrounding uh, the Russian intervention, even though we might not agree on the conclusions. And two weeks after that, I interviewed another senator, senior senator Republican on the Senate Intelligence Committee. And he said, well, yeah, I saw that interview. Uh, there's a part of it that I disagree with. We don't agree on the facts. Did, did he mention what it was? Uh, no, no, with? interestingly no. enough, uh, no. Yeah. Byron, um, so you've been um, critical of uh, the sort of mainstream media's coverage uh, of, of this story uh, and the sort of narrative um, that is, seems to be largely accepted that, uh, um, you know, maybe collusion hasn't been proven, um, but uh, it certainly is 
close to being proven. There's a lot there, a ton of smoke. Um, I'm curious, what would you have asked Senator Warner? What did we not ask him that we should have? Well, Senator Warner kept up the collusion tease that the, has been going on for quite a long time, didn't, didn't say anything about it. Um, to, to deflect from your question for one second, at the end, he gave, I think, a perfect example of this new, um, uh, not new, but line about the dossier in which the fact that it has not been proven untrue is kind of a new standard for legitimacy. You hear that a lot. Dianne Feinstein said it uh, this year. Lawrence Tribe says it. We've seen it from all sorts of uh, media figures that since it has not been proven untrue, then, I don't know, it's important, it's legitimate. I'm not sure exactly... Um, uh, what they mean. So um, f for me, one of the, the other interesting things is he said, I have no idea what Mueller is doing. He said he believes that uh, Mueller uh, uh, based some of his indictments of the, of the Russians in the, uh, in the uh, social media indictment. He believes that he based it on some of the work that the Senate Intelligence Committee had done. Uh, but other than that, just didn't know anything. And um, I, I find that an extremely frustrating situation. Uh, Ken, are you as frustrated as Byron is? It, it is frustrating, but it's also completely understandable. And I think that comment did underscore the extent to which maybe it's a mistake to, to care very much or pay very close attention to what the Senate Intelligence Committee is doing, because at the end of the day, they can't get to the facts that Robert Mueller, with his grand jury subpoena power, can get to. And that's what's going to make or break this case, is we have this circumstantial case of collusion. Byron may disagree, but, you know, we have the Trump Tower emails saying, you know, we're, we're, we're willing to accept dirt from the Russian government, essentially. Now the question is, what can Mueller prove? What actually happened that we're not seeing and that, and that Mark Warner is not seeing? And I think that, and, and we're just not going to find out until Robert Mueller decides well, to tell you know, us. But there is a, a conundrum here, because Mueller's brief is not to um, illuminate for the public uh, what the facts are. His brief is he's a Justice Department prosecutor whose only job is to bring criminal cases uh, when he finds evidence of, of violations of federal statutes. That's not going to necessarily answer any of the key questions we all have about right. this matter. Um, so that's why it is so important what the committee does, even if they don't get access to all these witnesses, um, who else is going to be able to bring out the facts? I think the most important thing the committee could do is, at the end of the day, require... Mueller, I think, has to write a report to Rod Rosenstein. This, the, the regs are silent on whether that report is ever made public. The committee's right. main role should be to make sure that as much of that information as possible is declassified and made public. Well, and again, you know, what I'm struck by, right, is... A, we don't know what we don't know, uh, and that is both frustrating, but also, you know, it's an important caveat, right, to, to all the listeners. Like, it's, we can analyze what we see, but that really is uh, a fragment, uh, both of the information that all these, uh, not just the committees, but the prosecutors are dealing with. It's very hard to go into legal analysis mode, which, you know, happens, frankly, every day on TV. You know, how many times have you seen or even participated in, uh, you know, the sort of, well, based on what we know now, uh, you know, what does the evidence show us? The answer is we don't know. I do agree that ultimately... It's going to be, these are parallel investigations, and somehow, laws of geometry notwithstanding, they will intersect, uh, you know, at some point in the future, whether it's putting out the report or holding subsequent hearings based on uh, what, what becomes public as a result of court cases or legal action. But it is so important that it has to become public in a big, big way. I mean, there's a, I agree. There, are, there are many people yes. who hope to use this affair to remove the president from office. That's as big as you can get. Yes. This has got to become public. And Correct. at the end of the Lewinsky matter, Ken Starr published this report, and then he dumped everything to Congress. <laughs> I read it all. I, I, you know, I, <laughs> I remember talking to a, 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 a star prosecutor after all this happened, and I was asking him about a, a scene in which he was talking to Vernon Jordan in the grand jury. Mm -hmm. He said, I can't talk about it. and said, I'm reading. I said, I'm reading the transcript of it right now. You made it all public, remember? Um, but uh, th there's going to have to be... This is complicated by the fact that, unlike then, there's a lot of classified stuff, but I think there's no doubt that too much is classified about all this. Too much is kept secret. And a lot of people are going to be extremely pissed off, like myself, if there is not an enormous dump 
of information at the end of this. Well, I want to get back to the question of uh, the press's role in covering this story, and I'd love to hear how you all assess uh, the job that we've done, um, you know, the things we've done well, the things that we've done less well. Why don't you all um, uh, uh, give us your thoughts, and then I'd have a couple of specific follow-ups. Yeah. Ken, you want to take a I mean, whack at that? Yeah, I think it's it's like everything else we do. You know, we have good days and bad days. I mean, I, I, I'm on cable news a lot talking about this. That is not exactly the best forum for a considered discussion or legal analysis necessarily. Sometimes we make too much of the latest development. Um, and sometimes I think it's hard for viewers to follow all this crazy cast of characters and, and it's hard to provide context. But look, I think there's been some important uh, reporting, both in the broadcast sphere and in the Pulitzer Prize winning, you know, print guys. So here's a point that uh, I think Jay Rose and the media critic, someone made recently, which is that press is doing a phenomenal job at holding, uh, of, of doing uh, accountability, accountability journalism, amazing investigative reporting that all of you guys are doing, the Washington Post, the New York Times, winning Pulitzers, um, learning things that uh, otherwise would not um, uh, you know, be publicly disclosed. The question is, is it holding Trump accountable? In other words, is he actually, is there evidence that he is changing his conduct, his behavior um, at all um, as a result of uh, the investigations, as a result of the journalism? But I, you know, I'd like to challenge that uh, version of what accountability is a little bit. Uh, you know, ultimately, uh, you know, you don't write uh, with the idea that you're aiming at a particular individual. Uh, you know, my guess is that no, uh, you know, Trump doesn't hold himself accountable to that run of coverage. The question is whether uh, the public does, whether the institutions of government ultimately do. Now, I have a similar concern. I just wouldn't frame it so narrowly around, well, we failed somehow if Donald Trump doesn't change his behavior as a result of all this good reporting. Uh, you know, after the 2016 election, and at the time I, I was the, the editor of Politico and I, I supervised our coverage, obviously, like a lot of people, you know, looking back and trying to understand, you know, how did this, the biggest surprise in American political history, you know, unfold and, and what do we think of it? My view, and I, I wrote a big essay for, for Brookings about this, was boiled down to had we come to a situation of uh, uh, transparency without accountability, that we all uh, as journalists have long worshipped, uh, you know, at the, the temple of uh, sunlight is the best disinfectant, that basically it's not our job to figure out what to do with the information that's out there. It's our job to pick up the rock uh, and look what's under it. This is the whole premise of your podcast, right, is pick up the rock and there's an awful lot of scandal. By the way, if you're in Washington for more than two seconds, you realize that no party has a monopoly on, uh, you know, the bad behavior under the rock. Uh, you know, there are, we're talking about the star report. Uh, Democrats and Republicans do it too. But I do think as journalists, what what worries me is not that we're not somehow doing our job, although we could always do better, and, you know, I wish we had more on this particular story, but, but that, you know, our system somehow isn't working in the way that we always presumed well, that it would. on top of that, you have two alternative versions of reality. I, I don't know about you folks, but one thing I like to do at night is just flick back and forth between um, uh, Rachel Maddow and Sean Hannity because it's like you are on two different planets and um, it's really um, hard to see where it, 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 there's no Twain meeting at all. Um, is there going to be a reckoning for one side or the other um, when this matter is um, finally over? Or is there going to be a muddy outcome in which yeah. everybody feels uh, partially justified in yeah. the positions that they well, took? What do you think? That's a more of a real-life ending, I think. Yeah. I think, it, you know, in general, as far as the coverage is When you concerned, watch, all right, you're, you're critical of the Maddow view of the world. You're critical of um, much of the mainstream media coverage of this matter. But when you watch Sean Hannity going on about the Mueller crime family and uh, all the well, crimes I mean, that James Comey has committed, what, what, what's your reaction well, when you hear would, people on your side saying would, things like that? I would take issue with your characterization of me spending a lot of time being critical of the well, other coverage. I okay. feel right. that um, while there's been a lot of good coverage, uh, one, a lot of it's been overdone because even a really significant big story can be overdone. Right. Um, and as far as the, the issue of, uh, in this particular issue, 
the behavior of the intelligence and law enforcement world in this, including the dossier, including the use of the Logan Act, including a number of other issues, I felt that um, in the larger press scheme, perhaps it wasn't getting enough attention, so I've been doing a lot on that. So I don't have to dump on everybody else right. to feel that something is important and needs to be covered. Right. So that's the way I would describe what I'm doing. I think the answer to no, your but, question... No, but wait a second. But the question I asked was your reaction when you hear Sean Hannity going off oh, well, on I some think, of these over-the-top... Well, first of all, I'm a, I'm a Fox News contributor, okay. so I'm, I'm yeah. not here to dump on Fox News. On the other hand, um, I... Look... Anybody who appears in a newspaper probably has lots of opinions expressed in the newspaper that they don't like by other people in the newspaper. Um, so I think the things that are correct are things that I might actually, that I think are correct, that I'm pursuing myself. Um, and everything else, I just don't have a lot to do with. You asked and, whether there would be a reckoning. I think there will be a Hollywood-style reckoning only if there's actual smoking gun proof linking Donald Trump to collusion, being aware of, coordinating with. If that doesn't happen... It is going to be more of a muddied, uh, muddled situation, and both sides will claim vindication. You know, I think again, this is this is what makes me deeply uncomfortable. It's not, it's not, you know, any of our faults. It's understandable. We're all eager to jump to the end of the story. Um, I already feel that I have seen in the course of uh, more than a year, almost a year and a half of reporting on this, information that uh, had I known it at the beginning of the thing, I would have been really blown away by. I, I, I fear also that we walk into these traps now of, you know, creating uh, standards uh, for the story that make it impossible for people to judge the facts on their own merit. So, so wait a minute. So you're telling me that if Donald Trump had to, like, basically personally be receiving uh, instructions from Vladimir Putin for this to be uh, an outrageous intervention in American elections? I disagree with that. I don't accept that. I already feel very uh, struck uh, as someone who spent the last, shockingly enough, almost 20 years, uh, you know, following both Russian uh, 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 politics and American policy toward Russia. Uh, I lived in Moscow during the, the first four years of the Putin presidency. I have to tell you, this, uh, the facts that are already public that are facts as opposed to the interpretations of them are striking. They represent a significant uh, escalation on the part of the Kremlin of its aggressive moves towards the United States. And by the way, that's a conclusion that has been accepted, uh, uh, not only brought to us by American intelligence agencies, but accepted by even the most senior members of President Trump's government, uh, Republicans as well as Democrats. Okay, so putting aside any other issue, we already have, I think, a pretty alarming fact set out there. But we're in this, like, arms race uh, to escalate but do we, the standards. So uh, do we in the press, should we accept responsibility for setting up these false expectations, this false threshold uh, for, you know, where we need to get for it to be a, uh, a huge proven scandal? You know, look, I would say uh, it's not the first time that Russia... Uh, or an American debate about Russian policy has been politicized at, at its base. McCarthyism uh, and uh, the uh, real battles that racked the American uh, 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 political establishment in the years after, or even during, but especially after World War II, uh, was uh, as divisive of an issue as you could get. And at that time, in, in the same way, I, I imagine Russia specialists and George Kennan were tearing out their hair. <laughs> Uh, to hear what senators on Capitol Hill had to say about the red but, menace. So there was reporters... a red menace, and it was also true that uh, Senator mm -hmm. McCarthy was a terrible liar who, mm -hmm. uh, you know, degraded and debased American politics. Both things can be true. Most reporters covering this scandal don't have that kind of context that you have from having covered Russia, being a foreign correspondent there, uh, covering Putin for several years. What do you think of the, uh, the, the coverage... Of, of the sort of the Russia dimension of this story uh, and whether uh, the American reporters covering it kind of get the nuances, provide the context, um, and uh, how important is that? Well, Dan, you know, as you might imagine, the Russia story is a pretty different story in many ways than the Russia Gate story. Uh, and uh, that, from the beginning, has been... Uh, a challenge. It's true, by the way, in almost any uh, big, complicated running story. Uh, you know, there's different uh, narratives of it, and there's, you know, General Petraeus... But the point, the point you made about, the, and 
escalation in Putin's aggressive behavior right. yeah. uh, is an important one. And, you know, what is perhaps as astonishing as anything is it's actually seems to have even increased since the 2016 election. Um, if we accept the conclusions of the UK intelligence community and the US yeah. about what happened in uh, 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 the uh, with the poisoning the of Skripal. Poison. Yeah. Uh, pretty amazing. We also had the report the other day um, that some of the spies who had been uh, expelled by the US were believed to have been trailing Russian defectors in the United States. So, so that Mike would be pretty Pretty alarming, if true. Yeah. So I want to. I want I agree with you on yeah. that. I want to just quickly answer Dan's question because I think it's important. Uh, you know, the people who I know and respect who follow Russia closely, as I have uh, Russians I know in Moscow, both those uh, you know who are very opposed to the Putin government and those who are, you know, more just observers of the situation, they worry that we in the United States, you know, through the press, have elevated Vladimir Putin, that we have played into his hands uh, and made him, in effect, 10 feet tall. Uh, you know, uh, some of that is the nature of the media beast in the sense that we have heroes and villains. We have, uh, you know, we necessarily simplify complicated things. And, you know, so Vladimir Putin can seem to be the sort of all-powerful, all-knowing uh, hand, right? In the same way that we've personalized uh, North Korea, although he, you know, it's a very personalized form of authoritarian government, uh, you know, Vladimir Putin does not uh, order everything that occurs uh, in the name of the Russian government. Uh, the Russian people uh, often are conflated in our coverage with the actions of uh, the Kremlin. And that, of course, is also not the case, even though Putin was just, uh, you know, re-elected to a, another six-year term in uh, a not very uh, free and open process. It doesn't mean that, therefore, the Russians have endorsed... Uh, but an attempted targeting, targeted killing on foreign yeah. soil is probably going to be approved okay. at the highest levels, Listen, correct? you know, the, the Litvinenko killing, uh, right. you know, which occurred uh, with the use, again, of an extremely uh, 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 restricted substance uh, on British soil. Poison. Exactly. Yeah. It, it, this had already occurred, and I think Putin and his government may have felt uh, that, well, the British government uh, didn't cut off relations then, it didn't escalate, and, uh, you know, so they may be saying, well, why are they overreacting in this situation? I, I generally am of the view that uh, such a highly restricted substance, uh, it, it's not plausible to me that uh, it would have been used, especially on foreign soil, uh, without uh, government knowledge of but it. But bringing this to the U.S. election, though, uh, this is a situation in which we have had a number of commentators discuss the attack on our system, on our electoral system, as being akin to 9-11 or being akin to Pearl Harbor, and it's something that the, the effects of which they can't even show. We don't know exactly what they are. After 9-11, real physical evidence of what had just had happened. After Pearl Harbor, same thing. With this, you, you use this, not you, but you hear this enormous, uh, enormously consequential rhetoric over something whose effects most Americans don't really understand because the authorities are telling them they don't know either. Well, and I think that there's a failure of journalism in here, though, because I think U.S. intelligence officials do know some of the effects. I was at a conference recently, a cipher brief intelligence conference, and senior national security uh, agency officials were openly acknowledging we are in an information war with Russia, and we're not really fighting back. They have been waging an information campaign, and they're on social media, and it's involving bots and automation and Did messages. Did they tell you what effect it had in the 2016 voting? Well, well we, Byron, that's not measurable. The, the, the Russians there you go. That's the problem <laughs> with calling it Pearl Harbor and 9-11. The, the, the Russians must believe it's having some effect because they keep doing it, right? So they obviously must feel that they're getting some payoff by doing this. And by the way, you know, it is a, um, a violation of federal law longstanding for a Foreign, for a foreigner to give money in a U.S. presidential election. The test is not whether that money actually swung the uh, uh, outcome of the election. It's illegal on its face because we don't want foreign powers, uh, adversaries or allies, um, influencing what Americans do in their own uh, democratic system. So it matters whether or not you can show uh, 
you know, uh, Hillary Clinton would have won but for the Russian intervention. I don't think that's the question. Well, I, I think I, it's is, is a foreign government doing something they shouldn't be doing. Then you're never going to be able to sell it at the 9-11 level. I, I don't think he is. I, you know, I, I, you, I'm you, sorry. We have we have heard these comparisons but, made. I'm not suggesting that anyone right. sitting here in this. By the way, is the thing. guy who says that the Republican yeah. former head of the CIA yeah. and NSA. Um, I believe we have an opportunity to let our audience ask questions if anybody does. So um, there is a microphone mm -hmm. there if anybody wants to um, uh, get up. And it looks like our colleague John Ward. Uh, is, uh, actually has a question for the panel. Good opportunity uh, to plug his podcast, The Long Game, okay. a new Yahoo News podcast, which is excellent. Thank you. I was Check wondering when that was coming, Dan. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, one of the things that Senator Warner said that I also thought was a little bit of wishful thinking was when he said that impeach, talk of impeachment in the midterm elections is where the president's allies want to go. That's almost a verbatim quote. You have seen some Republicans trying to cast it that way, but I think that really minimizes the degree to which there's a lot of energy on the left and among the grassroots for talk of impeachment or at least, you know, getting the House back to start that process, uh, which I think is going to be a huge challenge for Democrats. You saw Rahm Emanuel get out there and try to tamp that down. So just wanted to get your thoughts on how that's going to play out. I think with the state of our knowledge today, I, would Im I think that that dynamic you're talking about is correct. You know, in 2006, if you remember, um, when Democrats stood to win control of the House, mm -hmm. which they did, uh, there, was a, there was talk among some Democrats about impeachment. Remember, remember the Downing Street memos? John Conyers, who sure. stood to be the chairman of the House mm -hmm. Judiciary Committee, yep. which would originate articles of impeachment, was talking about it a lot. Nancy Pelosi, who stood to become Speaker, began to worry about this, and I believe in October of that year went on 60 Minutes to say impeachment is off the table. Mm -hmm. So my feeling is that with the, the state of the evidence that we have right now, Mm -hmm. that's probably the smart democratic move. On the, on the other hand, there could be some enormous revelation tomorrow that changes everything. Well, Look, I, they're both um, uh, right in a way. Uh, you know, I think it's a base issue right now for both the Republican and the Democratic base. Uh, and uh, Senator Warner's not wrong. You do see, uh, I've heard it myself from some Republican strategists saying uh, they'd like to run, at least in certain areas, on... Uh, stirring up the fear among Trump's core supporters that he is at risk uh, if they turn the House over to Democrats. We, we've all heard that. We know that that is an element of the Republican campaign in some House districts that are the most fervently supported. We also know that Tom Steyer, a California billionaire, right. is spending millions and millions of dollars on TV ads rallying the Democratic and, base. But much to uh, the consternation of a lot of, absolutely. of Democrats. Absolutely. Senator but, Warner represents what's happening here in Washington. Right, right, right. But I, I think there's uh, probably a consensus that if the Democrats do get back control of the House in November, there will be uh, multiple resolutions for impeachment. And I'm trying to imagine, um, given how fired up the Democratic base is going to be um, about this, um, I'm trying to imagine how Nancy Pelosi, if she's then the speaker, um, finishes, goes to the well of the House and says, we should not impeach him because... Fill in the blank. Well, <laughs> fill, fill in the sentence when she's on the floor of the House trying to argue against impeachment. There's a wild card here, though, which is that the state of our reporting and others' reporting is that Robert Mueller is moving towards an obstruction of justice report that he's trying to get done before the midterms. Right. He thinks he's got a case there. We don't know what, he's, what he has. We only know what's been in the public domain. Um, and if there is a credible case of obstruction of justice presented against the president, that changes the whole dynamic. Do we know that that we report... Have another, we have another question All right, another here. question. Right, yeah. Um, uh, I want to go back to the cyber war for a question for a second. I think you're saying there's a cyber war going on, but we're not fighting back. That's right. So how would we fight back? I mean, how, how, how do you fight back without getting into a situation where you're turning each other's lights off? Right. So it's this is we're, what the way intelligence officials frame this is it's an information war, not a cyber war in the sense of destroying things with cyber. The Russians are, are bombarding us with propaganda and we're, we're not uh, the U.S. government is not allowed to engage in propaganda, but it can tell the truth. It can get on Twitter and counter those messages. It's not doing that. You know, famously, the State Department has this global engagement center. It was allocated one hundred and twenty million dollars. <laughs> To go overseas and fight propaganda, it hasn't spent a penny of that money. I did a story recently about the Broadcasting Board of Governors and the VOA, you know, those Cold War era agencies that used to do this stuff. They're doing it a little bit, but they're so pathetically underfunded and so not nimble compared to RT, which is a $500 million 
propaganda machine aimed at us. I'd like to chime in on, on this one because um, there's a new book out, uh, Evan. I don't know if you've had a chance to read it, Russian Roulette, which deals with how the Obama White House uh, was um, trying to come to terms with how to respond to what the Russians had done in the cyber arena. And there were people on the White House staff who came up with a whole range of uh, options for cyber attacks on Russian news sites, uh, shutting down various online uh, uh, Russian going sites that Putin's, were putting children's out, going uh, after bank Putin's accounts. And Obama, Obama nixed it. Um, and one of the reasons was because um, James Clapper told him that if we get into a cyber war with the Russians, we're more vulnerable than they, and um, they can um, shut down our electrical grill grid. Now, what we didn't know at the time, and this only recently emerged, is that the Russians were probing electrical grids in the United States in the summer of 2016. So that just underscores how vulnerable we are, and it's pretty frightening when a president's hands are tied because of it, it, the concern that if we strike back, um, we're going to get hit much harder. So I think that's a, a really important point. Another thing I just wanted to put out there, because I'm not sure people really realize this, is they almost have the impression that when we're talking about this Russian intervention, that it's just sort of like stupid stuff on Facebook that you are free to ignore. Uh, you know. Russian information warfare, as it's played out, uh, not only in the United States, but in particular uh, in uh, the countries in Eastern Europe and, and now increasingly in Western Europe, is really about weaponizing information. Uh, and that is different uh, than sharing a stupid video with you that you, you know, don't have to look at. Uh, for example, one of the most early indicators that I think we all missed the significance of occurred back in uh, 2014 as a prelude to uh, the, at the time, shocking Russian uh, takeover of Crimea, the first armed uh, takeover of territory since the end of World War II, by the way, and forcible annexation of territory. So what happened before that? There was this street revolution in Ukraine in the midst of which the Russians uh, used a, a, a recording of a senior American diplomat that they had obtained, uh, you know, not through hacking, you know, her email, but Victoria by... Newton. Yeah, exactly, Victoria Newton. by old-fashioned, uh, you know, tapping, you know, phones, cell phones in this case, uh, leaked it in a very targeted way to weaponize this information. This is the famous uh, uh, bleep the EU uh, uh, thing. I don't know if you this is a, a family podcast, podcast or not. You know, this is the, the fuck the EU yeah. uh, comment that she was overheard saying to another American diplomat in the midst of heated negotiations. Okay, that's weaponizing information. Mm. The Russians did that in Poland, by the way. It brought down a government. Yeah. And we could do and, that, and we don't. We and, have a lot of great right. recordings That's that we right. do we knew, not deploy. We knew that happened. There were other examples like that. And we didn't put it together. We didn't, we didn't put it together. It was, again, I mean, it was a failure of imagination. It was there. Right. We were fighting the last war right. and not realizing. And by the way, the Russians had been tampering with elections in Western Europe, in Holland, you know, we, right. you know and... and you know, no one right, seemed to... Right. And, and, and even through the summer of 2016, when there was a lot of attention on this issue, the, um, the intelligence community seems to have been completely oblivious to the social media component. Yes. Knew nothing about the Facebook ads, knew nothing about the Twitter bots, um, which was a big component of the I mean, you got to uh, remember that, that, you know, Obama uh, was... You know, he was playing uh, three-dimensional chess uh, with the Russians and, and trying to figure out how they could be helpful on Syria. Of course, they ended, ended up that they were not, have not been helpful on Syria, but they were trying on counterterrorism, on various other things, and you, you know, you have to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. Uh, but they still didn't put enough emphasis on this, on this issue. Well, it was three-dimensional chess, but the fundamental assumption underneath it all was that Hillary Clinton was going to win the Well, election. that's right, and that that's drove absolutely. so many of the decisions. Even yes. in this yeah. Comey tour, you realize that so many of the decisions he made were premised on the belief Correct. that Hillary Clinton was going to win the election. Uh, and by the way, the, the Russian campaign was very likely... Uh, not just our response to it, but actually the Russians themselves uh, also believed that they were, in effect, probably softening yes. up Hillary Clinton. Exactly. Uh, so they perceived that she would be a tough interlocutor for them. Uh, and They were reading 538 and Real Clear Politics <laughs> just the same as we Some are. quick comments on the coverage of the Comey book tour, Ken. 
I think there's been a healthy skepticism. He's not come out necessarily as well as he might have thought. There's been some many tough questions about uh, he sold six hundred thousand bucks. Yeah, well, I mean, he's, I mean, I, I think he had money before this. So, okay, but I mean, right. the, I don't think his reputation has survived. Because why? Give me a quick example. Well, you know, the, the, his decision to sort of get down in the gutter with Trump and write about the size of his hands and the color of his skin and his right. hair really rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. I think. Um, well, unfortunately, apparently we're out of time. Uh, so uh, I want to thank our panel, our guests. Uh, this was the first live edition of um, Skullduggery. Um, uh, there will be hopefully uh, many more in the future. But every week um, on uh, wherever you get your podcasts, uh, yeah, you usually give these lines, right? You know, it's Apple, Acast, I don't know. Just write us a five-star <laughs> review. Right, right. right. Uh, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, yeah. and, uh, and also, importantly, just a reminder that we are now on Sirius XM. POTUS. POTUS Channel. POTUS right. Channel 124. Yeah. Yeah. Saturdays at 1. Right. 2 a 2 a.m. on yeah. Sunday yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. for yeah, okay it's all new all right <laughs> yeah it's not like oh there anyway, it comes on the prompter right. it's not like Bill Clinton when the prompter went off at the State of the Union right. and he just had it all you know yeah, at his yeah, command yeah. So. anyway thanks everybody for uh, and and thanks to our guests and thanks yeah. to the audience. Yeah.